very pleased to be joined by a number of esteemed panelists here. So we have Anthony Gurney, founder and CEO of Ardmore Shipping, Carlos Balestra de Matola, CFO of D'Amico, Michael Skov, who's a CEO of Hafnia, Christian Ingerslev, CEO of Maris Tankers, James Doyle, head of business development and investor relations, Scorpio Tankers. So gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us. We had a very lively crude tanker panel just before this, and so want to kind of keep things going. I opened up with a, a similar question. Obviously, we've seen a, a buoyant tanker market broadly over the course of the last, um, you know, been, been quite some time now. So I, I guess one of, one of the things I wanted to start with was just maybe your characterization of this cycle and maybe at how it compares or doesn't compare to previous ones that you've sort of lived through. So. You know, Anthony, you're closest to me, so I'm probably going to kick it to you first to give us some perspective. I'll, I'll be brief and kick it off. It's it's very different. <coughs> I'll, I'll let the others expand on that, but I mean, we haven't seen rates at these kind of sustained levels ever, and I think it's also different because it feels quite sustainable. Very helpful and succinct. I like that, Car <laughs> uh, Carlos. Maybe I'll I'll kick it to you. So so why so sustainable? What's your perspective on the market? Uh, it's sustainable for a number of reasons. Um, we are still uh, in a recovery uh, mode from uh, from COVID. Uh, in 22, we benefited from the reopening in, uh, in Europe and in, in the US, and this year we will benefit from the reopening in China. Um, of course, there are uh, also um, a lot of inefficiencies related to the uh, to the war in, uh, in Ukraine, uh, which have affected the market positively. Um, but uh, the, I would say that the, the, the main factor which makes this a very sustainable uh, cycle is uh, very low order work. Um, and uh, we haven't been seeing a particular um, um, a large interest for, for new building orders, only a trickle of orders here and there coming in, and so that is also a very good sign. And there's a, there are very good reasons why, and we will cover that afterwards, why not that many orders are, are arriving. Got it. For That's helpful. Um, Michael, maybe a, a slightly different question for you. So when you think about the drivers of demand out there, so I know this is a two-pronged sort of strength in the market, both from a demand perspective as well as the order book side, could maybe expand a little bit on the demand side and what you're seeing drive um, you know, the relative outperformance or maybe what's the biggest contributor to that? Yeah, so well, I think probably a bit twofold. Uh, I think on one side, it's the absolute demand. So I think you know it's the fact that oil demand has come back overall on a global basis. So we're basically back to where we were before COVID and adding more to it all the time. Um, you know I think it's it's what we've seen over the last probably 10 years, uh, an increased um, ton mile, which is a continuing thing that we we keep on seeing, and not just because of the, the current war, but also just in terms of refineries dislocation. And then on top, I think, you know, the structural changes, which it has become now, which is really the ton mile coming out of the whole uh, sanction against Russian oil, Russian exports. There's no doubt that, you know, that in itself has added a lot of structural change. And, and in our view, this is not something that will get rolled back even in, in a time of peace. Uh, I think if you live in Europe, you, you kind of understand that, that nobody wants to go back and be depending on, uh, on Russian oil and export again. So um, so these are probably the, the factors kind of overall combined with what was said before. 
And, and Christian, from your perspective as an analyst, I always like to try to think about numbers. Is it possible to look at the disruption from Russia and give us a sense of what ton-mile demand might have been boosted by? Is that something that we can kind of get our arms around, or is it a little bit more difficult to, uh, to get to than that? So the beauty is nobody knows. So whatever I say will either seem very smart or a random guess. Uh, but what we've, of course, seen for uh, at least also last year, um, even as the war uh, progressed, then uh, Europe kept on importing about uh, one million barrels a day, uh, particularly in the, in the northern parts. Uh, and that oil has been displaced as of February 5th. Uh, it now goes longer distances. Europe has gradually started importing uh, longer distances from the, amongst others, the Middle East. Um, so it does give a sort of a meaningful increase. Uh, every analyst has their own guess. We are saying somewhere between four and six percent um, that's being added. And considering that we have an order book that uh, this year will grow one and a half percent, next year it's about the same. Uh, that's quite a meaningful uh, growth. Um, now we didn't see sort of a huge impact on the fifth of February. I think it was fair to say that Europe had prepared a little mm -hmm. bit. But stock levels are reasonably low, and that just adds to the, the likelihood of, of uh, inefficiencies suddenly being created and, and sudden spikes would be seen. And I think I know the answer to this, but James, maybe if you could opine a little bit on, on if we were to see a ceasefire or something change there, would you expect anything dramatic? I don't think we're going back to where we were before, but would there be any potential changes that you would see as an immediate after effect of something like that? Um, I don't think immediately. I think it would take time. Uh, if you look at some of the sanctions from Europe and the U.S. and actually look at some of our customers, they have imposed their own sanctions. So if you call Russia, we won't do business with you. And it's somewhat vague. Is it that specific vessel? Is it the whole fleet? Uh, and obviously, we haven't tested those waters with them. Uh, but what I would say is what's really driving this market and the other panelists have highlighted it, is we have a demand scenario where we're above pre-COVID levels and less refining capacity globally. So we always look at refining capacity on a, an overall absolute basis. But if you think about the three million barrels of closures in the West Coast, United States, Europe, Australia, these areas need to replace their, their lost production. And I think that is going to highlight, as Michael spoke about, continued demand in ton miles. And, and that's probably a bigger factor in, in the way we look forward as opposed to just sanctions happening or slowing down. That's helpful. Anthony, maybe back to you, and, and I wanted to try to sensitize the economy to what you're seeing. So obviously, again, we, we'll get to the supply side in a minute, but as you're thinking about the U.S. economy and potentially Europe and demand that might result from that, how, how do you think about that sort of sensitivity or maybe what's your outlook for the rest of the year in terms of you know, economic activity. I think you could synthesize it <clears throat> down to really what the IA has been saying, which is that, you know, in spite of the fact that for the past few months they've, you know, there, there's been, you know, a noticeable increase in kind of economic headwinds, they're still predicting roughly a 3% uh, increase in oil demand from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Uh, we'll see what, how, how they absorb the latest information, but I, I bet it'll be maybe a slight downward adjustment which means that there's, you know, this very strong fundamental um, impetus to uh, drive oil demand uh, growth this year. And, you know, you could then start trying to break that and figure out what's driving it, but um, it's essentially a full recovery from the pandemic, I think. Uh, so. so 
maybe Carlos, for you, what does China mean to all of this? So obviously we're post-Chinese Chinese Lunar New Year and there is a reacceleration. It appears to be underway. What does that mean for product demand? No, China is definitely going to be an important contributor to demand this year. Um, we'll have to see how robust this uh, recovery is, but the, uh, the uh, International Energy Agency estimates uh, an additional almost one million barrel per day in, in demand from China in, in 23. Um, a lot of it also linked to, to jet fuel. Jet fuel will be the star product. Um, uh, it will, the demand will be, be increasing by around 18%, 1.2 million barrels per day. Um, of course, China is also an, an important exporter of refined products, so that, that will be important to see how this balance plays out because um, the, it is expected the refining activity in China should increase by more or less the same uh, as demand um, uh, this year. Um, and so the question is, will there be uh, enough barrels for, for experts? I, I believe there will be. Uh, and they will arrive when, when the, the economics are there, uh, when there is the pool effect, uh, which we will, we will be seeing soon from, from Europe, because Europe imported uh, a lot of Russian oil uh, just before the sanctions came into force. So they um, rebuilt a bit their inventories, and that uh, helped, um, helped Europe cope with the initial impact of the, of the sanctions. Uh, but eventually these, uh, these inventories will, will be depleted uh, and we do see a market which will be in deficit, a uh, substantial deficit of oil in the second half of the year. Uh, as Tony mentioned, I mean, demand is uh, predicted to be robust between Q1 and Q4 this year. Demand will, will grow by around 3 million barrels per day, uh, possibly even more. Uh, and so the market will, uh, will, uh, will, will, will from uh, Q3 uh, will be in deficit. So at a certain point, the economics will be there and these barrels will start moving out of China. Uh, and uh, China is currently exporting much less than it was exporting uh, in uh, the last few months of last year, uh, but still more than it was exporting throughout most of 2022. But there is a potential for, for, for a ramp up in exports. In, in terms of refinery maintenance in the U.S. And, and maybe some incremental startups in the Middle East, I guess, how do you see, maybe there's a question for Michael, how do, you, how do you see trade flows evolving maybe in the second half of the year? Do you think that there's going to be, you know, larger differences, obviously taking China into account as well in terms of origin and destination pairs? Yeah, so, <clears throat> well, I think maybe a good way to look at it is that um, we do have a very strong market, but I think it's, it's also clear that we should not expect that this is like an ongoing line that just goes up. What, what we're basically seeing is that we're going to see a much stronger market this year than last year, but we're still going to see volatility. And one of, going back to your question, so when you have refinery maintenance, as we have now we're in the middle of it, you know, you are going to see slowdown certain month. The difference is that if you go back a year or two years, uh, at this time during a maintenance season, you'd have 10,000, maybe $8,000 per day times that equivalent. Mm -hmm. Now you have 25. So I think at least we should, we should all be aware that we're still gonna have volatility, but it'll be with a much higher floor. Um, so I think on, on the refinery side, um, and, and we should be a bit mindful that Chinese exports is definitely coming down for sure. 
and we've seen that already. There was a lot of activity in December, but we don't see that as being super impactful on loss of ton mile. I mean, a lot of those barrels went to Asia and some to Europe, and most of that will get replaced by oil out of new refineries in the Middle East or US Gulf. And as such, a lot of the vessels will be the same. They'll just be ballasting a bit longer to pick up the oil, but it'll take out the same supply in theory. Um, so yeah, I, I, I mean, for us at least, the, the key element to watch on the refinery side is, is really the Middle East, the Kuwaiti and the Saudi Arabian refineries. I mean, one is operating 50%, another 15 but by third quarter, you'll see them up on full speed. That would be an export source of a lot of the oil that we have been missing from Russia mm -hmm. that will now come from those areas. Okay. Uh, does that make sense um, in terms of your thoughts, Christian, as well, in terms of the pickup? Uh, Middle East is an opportunity for you? Oh, so I can only agree with what Michael said. I think it's uh, the, the fundamentals are extremely strong at the moment. Uh, and there's, of course, I really liked what, uh, what Bob said on the earlier panel about all these events that will impact, and there's one in a thousand, and, but there's many of them. But it's just as we look uh, at the fundamentals for our industry right now, they're extremely good. And I think if we are to see something that is going to create volatility, uh, I'm more um, expecting it to be on the, for the upside. Okay. Um, I'm um, quite bullish on it these days. And then, so obviously the demand side is, I think, relatively straightforward. I mean, there's going to be wrinkles, clearly, and there will be volatility, I think, as you guys have suggested. Let's talk a little bit about the supply side. Maybe staying with you, Christian, can you talk a little bit about, you know, your thoughts on, I guess, number one, age of the fleet, and then number two, you know, the, the order book. As you said, historic low levels, there's just not going to be a lot of capacity coming into the market. So, you know, maybe the, the direct question is, what do you think it takes to see orders begin to come into the market? Um, well, if we look at who orders today, it's people who have a tax incentive to do so or somebody who gets a backing from a charterer to do a longer term charter, uh, typically with some sort of dual fuel. Uh, otherwise, there's nothing being ordered. And I think if, if you look at tankers, it's sort of a double whammy. Uh, we don't know what to sail on, but we also don't know what to sail with. Uh, because as uh, new, fossil or new fuels, uh, zero emissions come uh, available, then right now we are either talking about ammonia, which is gas tankers, or methanol, which is more chemical tankers. So uh, you're, you're seeing a lot of discipline, not because people don't have cash to spend, but if you order a ship today, you get it in two, three years. Uh, and then it needs to last for 25 years. And there's so many uncertainties. Uh, on top of that, I think it's fair to say from an investor point of view, uh, then tanker shipping hasn't been sort of the flavor of the month. But that being said, there's a lot of money to be made during this transition. And I think the, the shipping companies that are here have an opportunity to make meaningful investment in decarbonization today. Uh, there's actually a lot of things you can do already now if you want to lower your emissions. So as you see, uh, um, people be sniffing around for new buildings. There's, there's very few who are eager to take the plunge. Yeah. Uh, and particularly order conventional vessels today that's going to last you for the next 25, 20 years. Yeah. Um, so um, that gives a lot of hope and a lot of underlying sentiment for the, for the tanker market from those who have ships on the water today. <coughs> James, your opinion on the order book? I mean, I'm guessing it's going to be similar, but I'm curious if you have a, a different take. 
Um, it, it's fairly similar. I think we will see orders, uh, but I, when you look, it'll be you know two two vessels with two options, not the six vessels with six options. And for for the reasons Christian highlighted, as well as the fact that if if you're really bullish on the market and you want asset exposure, you're probably better off buying a secondhand vessel uh, of a, maybe five or six years old because you can actually compare what you would be able to charter that out for for three years, right? There's an active liquid charter market today with some duration and assess how that asset would be priced. So are you buying an MR at 40 million today and then generating enough cash over that period so it's a four-year-old at 30 or so forth, you can actually run those numbers. And I think obviously secondhand values have come up quite a bit, but that is an interesting way to look at it as opposed to having the cash drag of having that vessel sit at a yard through 2026. Anthony, do you agree? Secondhand, is there are there opportunities for you there? Or how do you think about it? It's a good question. I think um, <clears throat> it's something that we all probably struggle with. Um, I, I think I think what's really at play here is recency bias. Yeah. I think we've uh, you know we're all scarred from ten years of, of weakness, <laughs> and uh, you can almost hear it in our voices as we're talking about the market and the outlook. Uh, and that's a good thing because I think it's going to keep the brakes um, on things. In, in addition to all the other reasons, I think there are psychological factors at play here. Uh, if you believe you're going to make a lot of money in the next year, then then you can kind of justify, you know, um, you know, buy, buying something secondhand um, on a kind of a written down basis a year from now. Uh, you know, it's a bit, a bit of a gamble, but I think that's the basis on on which a lot of ships are being bought at the moment. Uh, so. Carlos, you're there, you're our CFO on the panel, so so maybe putting some numbers to this. What, what are the What's the type of return profile look like for you to incentivize you to put a new build order in today? Uh, no, I think there's no, it's uh, not possible. I think today it's uh, out of the question. I think we are, we're definitely not looking at that. So I'm, I'm not running simulations about potential returns, but uh, it's uh, no, for, for the reasons that were mentioned in the panel, I think it was, you know, the, uh, the answers were very thorough. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense uh, to go and order new buildings uh, now. No. So Michael, what, what brings this to a head? So I, I asked this to the crew panel. We, we sort of were a little bit of a loggerheads in terms of no one wants to put new orders in for understandable reasons and the rates are relatively high and demand seems okay. W what changes all of this? Well, <coughs> it's a good question, right? I mean, I think first, first and foremost, I think we should probably be honest enough to say that it isn't just because that all the ship owners have changed mentality. I mean, we've been accused over years for ruining the market by ordering ships whenever we made money. And quite frankly, that's a fair assumption. The reality is that we have never, we've never had a demand problem in our sector ever. We've had a supply problem that has been dragging us down now and then. We don't have that now. And I think when you hear people being positive, it's really because even if we wanted to deliberately, all of us here, to ruin the tanker market completely, we couldn't. I mean, we could probably order 340, 50 MI equivalent product tankers for 2026 delivery, but I'm not even sure that would be enough to cover the shortfall. I think we have this dynamic now where we've underinvested, just like in the oil and gas industry, because there was a lot of environmental focus and people were holding back, and I don't think we can catch up because the order book has been filled by others. So. I think what, what you're going to be seeing is that we're all going to be focusing actually probably more about how do we create more length of the current fleet that we have. And it seems like you're going to be, you're going to be short of vessels, short of tonnage. So I very much agree with Christian is 
the, the more environmentally friendly you can make the current assets and prolong their, their lifetime, I think, you know, the better your business will be in a time where it's going to be very difficult to make any sense out of new builds. That's a great transition or, or segue. Christian, I was going to ask you because you commented in your last response about incremental investments that you can make, greater fuel efficiency, greater overall efficiency. So maybe walk through a couple of things that you can do with the fleet as it stands today and maybe what that return profile looks like. Obviously, in a very favorable market, I'm sure it looks pretty good. But, you know, give us a sense of, of how you think about that. So Lois actually outlined it quite well during lunch. Uh, in the, but uh, we've created this uh, very, very small uh, consultancy called Nord Solution, uh, where we are assisting owners uh, with a, what we call a, a technology screening no, based on known technologies. And, and we feel comfortable with about 20 different technologies. And uh, we screened 60 ships last year for 31 different owners. And what we see is that the, the saving is anywhere from 6 to 18% based on known technologies today with a payback profile of less than three years. That's a fairly good investment. Yeah. Um, and something that, that uh, will at least make people th think. And I think that there's a lot of stuff, if you go back three years, uh, silicone paint was like, yeah, I'm not really sure about it. And now people are presenting it as if it's the best thing since sliced bread. But it, it's known. Um, this is not the hearsay. This is not speculation. It's uh, technologies that have been tested for a long time. So, uh, so it be it uh, uh, silicone paint, propeller bus cap fins, uh, be it LED lights throughout your ships. There's a lot of it that's pretty basic, and you can do it now. People just haven't done it. Uh, and I think it's, it's so much about what impact can we make today, more than talking about what can we as an industry do to be neutral in 2050, because you know, the, 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 the uh, zero emission fuel is probably not going to be invented by anyone on this panel. We can support that trajectory, but we're probably not going to do it. So we need to focus on where we can make a difference right here, right now. So does this become part of the regular dry docking routine for you, for your fleet, over the course of the next several years as you think about it? Each time you stop, that, that ship will have some degree of improvement or incremental investment? Yeah, it, it has been and will continue to be, um, you know. But I think that what I really like is that there's actually a lot of people who are putting their foot forward in this yeah. industry. Um, People are coming together. We talk so much about collaborating, but people are actually collaborating now. And uh, they no longer see benefits that are related to environmental efficiency uh, to be a competitive advantage. It's actually something you share uh, yeah. because it's what's going to make our industry sustainable. So, James, on the analyst panel, I got asked what we think ship owners should do at this point in the cycle, elevated rates, small order books, what do you do with the with capital capital allocation? So, how do you answer that question for Scorpio? Well, I think for us, we we started highly levered last year at around 3.1 billion and had done whatever we could during 2021, which was a really difficult year for everybody up here on this stage um, to not raise equity. So we moved our convertible bond. We did some unsecured notes, but most of the liquidity we generated was through refinancing our vessels that had been in traditional bank facilities with sale lease back uh, financial institutions. And we are in the process of unwinding that. So we paid down around 1.2 billion in debt last year. Last week, we announced uh, 
the repurchase of six more vessels for 150 million. And we're refinancing that sale lease back debt, which is at about L plus 350 to 525 with new bank debt at say SOFR plus 190 to 197. And that's been our, our primary focus. Uh, the second thing we've done and have said is we will also look to return capital to shareholders, but while we delever, the best way to do that is through share repurchases, and we can do those opportunistically. Anthony, how do you answer that question? Where we are in the cycle, it's pretty robust. So how do you think about managing balance sheet and capital deployment in an environment like this? You know, clearly paying down debt is important. Um, I think that's <clears throat> it's an important thing to do because it also uh, increases the, uh, the quality of the cash flow or the earnings of the company and, and, the, and, the, and the, the dividend, uh, really lowers a break even, et cetera, but it also creates a lot more substance within the company in terms of the asset value. So, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, at some point though, uh, we'll, we'll all become just cash machines and we'll be paying out a lot of cash uh, for as long as this goes on and, and that's, that's great. Carlos, same, same question, I guess, but when you think maybe specifically about distribution, so how, how generally, I'm curious about how the panel sort of thinks about return to shareholders, whether it be through buybacks, as James mentioned, or is it dividends? Is there a, is there a, a preferred choice method in your point of view? Yeah, for, for us, it's, uh, I would say it's dividends, and uh, um, it's uh, our, let's say, uh, preference uh, has been uh, recently to, to deleverage, so um, not too different from what uh, also James was saying in that respect. We, we, we did put on a lot of leverage in our, on our balance sheet in the, in the bad years. Uh, we had a ratio at a certain point between uh, the net financial position and fleet market value, which was at uh, 73%. Today we are at 36%. Uh, so we want to continue down that route. We are buying back. We have a lot of options on, on these leases transactions and we are gradually buying them back. Uh, if the markets continue being as strong, we might even accelerate the rhythm at which we are buying back these vessels. Uh, we are keeping them initially debt free. So the idea is to increase the resilience of the company, uh, reduce the break even. Uh, and as Tony was saying, you know, and uh, when uh, when uh, eventually we, we get to <laughs> such low leverage levels where there is not much more debt to be reimbursed, we will become cash machines, cash distribution machines, and uh, so our dividends uh, payout ratios would increase dramatically. Okay, that's uh, I guess it's a high class problem to have. <laughs> so, uh, excuse me, maybe I'll, I don't want to skip over Michael. Michael, what's your what's your take? Similar question for you. How do you guys think about capital deployment? Yeah, so, well, we, uh, we bought 44 ships by the end of 21, early 22, so we kind of had positioned ourselves in terms of acquisitions. Um, so it's, a, it's basically the same story. Uh, for us, there's been that add-on that, you know, for the last 12 months, we worked quite a lot on creating free float. Mm -hmm. Our free float wasn't big enough, so we've been focusing really more on dividends. But in theory, you know, it, it's obviously a debate every single time whether you go for one or the other. But at the moment, you know, we have a... Um, we have a dividend policy that's linked to the net LTV. So, you know, the, the, the lower the net LTV, the higher the dividend, which is currently 60%. So, um, yeah, but, but there's been a lot of focus from us of creating that fee float. So that's why we've been mainly paying out dividends so far. Christian, maybe a slightly different take on that question for you. I guess I'm curious, does, does something else, you know, you, we talk about cash machines and the, the, the market doesn't always value cash dollar for dollar appropriately. So if there are dislocations, is, is M&A or consolidation ever a possibility in this space? Is that something that anybody would think about? 
So it's a bit surreal to sit on this panel and talk about us being cash machines. <laughs> uh, but you know, I guess we have to enjoy it uh, <laughs> as long as we can, and it, it seems to last a while. Um, so I, I do think that the industry has, has always talked a lot about M&A, but very few people have actually been successful. We've uh, now managed to get a few uh, listed entities who've been able to use their share. Uh, but it is not because you have two large companies that come together to create something bigger. I do think that scale is critical, but there are other means to create scale. Um, and you see that, well, now we sit here, uh, Michael and I, we both have uh, commercial management setups where owners, uh, uh, even with one ship, can get access to the scale that they need to be successful in the industry. So I'm not sure that it's always a benefit to do M&A, but I do think that you'll see consolidation in the industry, both on the technical side and the commercial side. And then you will have uh, some people who are listed who have the opportunity to utilize their share. Uh, but I would, I would say, if you look at it from the overall scope of the market, it's still relatively small. Yeah, okay, that's helpful. Um, certainly, if there's any questions from the audience, feel free to raise your hand and we can get you into the conversation. I have a few other questions that I wanna run through in the meantime. Um, I want to talk about depth of the charter market. So, so maybe James, we'll start with you down there. What do you, have we seen duration begin to kick out? Is that something that you would be willing to maybe pursue if it was the right number and, and years? How do you think about duration in the charter market? Well, this is, the, I've been with the company 10 years. The first time I've really seen a lot of three-year charters. I know okay. the, my peers over here I've seen a lot more but um, it's quite amazing actually so we've done 14 ships uh, at a minimum of three years some are five uh, the LR2 the first LR2 we did last summer was at $28,000 a day and the one we did in December was at 37,500 and I think that is rather than all of us up here saying you know we believe in this market and the supply demand fundamentals make sense when you have Exxon and Shell and BP coming out there and saying we as we agree and we're willing to put our capital towards it it's it's fantastic uh, would we be interested in chartering out more vessels I think so absolutely these are great rates and great returns so so maybe in the last few minutes that we have here um, I always like I always get asked as an analyst where rates are going to go, so I'm, I'm going to turn the tables on you guys and, and ask where you think rates are going to go. So if I had to look out to the end of the year, Anthony, maybe kick us off. You can, you can pick the, the vessel size and duration of the charter or spot, however you want to think about it. Where do you think rates are at the end of the year? So I've <coughs> been accused recently of being even keeled, so I'll uh, mention that uh, I was looking at some graphs earlier today, and it looks to me like since everything kicked off in kind of last April or so, we're actually right around the median, and for MRs that means about 35,000 a day. So I would imagine that we'll oscillate around that for the year and that's incredible earnings for all of us. So. Okay, so kind of hanging out where we are right now. Yeah. Carlos, we'll, we'll, yeah. your perspective? Uh, well, um, yeah, uh, those will be great numbers. I, I think we definitely achievable. I think we can actually even do better. I mean, I can, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we have another outstanding Q4 uh, also this year, so. So good Q4 could get you over those numbers. Michael, I see you, you smiling there. You must have a really big number in your mind. <laughs> no, no, that like wasn't it. But, right but <laughs> no, but, but I think at least our view is that um, that the year as a whole will be better than, than last year. And, and, and you know, for what it's worth, I think we haven't seen the full effect yet 
of the uh, sanctions on Russia. We haven't seen the effect on vessels that are actually loading in Russia at the moment, going to further away, how they're gonna come back, how, you know, how they're gonna be reacted to. But more importantly, really, we haven't seen the real effect of the tonne replacement of stuff going into Europe. So we think that still has to unfold. So, so our view would be that we are more positive second half of this year than, than first half. So ultimately a stronger market. Christian, your perspective? Yeah, no, I would say the same. Uh, that I actually think, so I'm very bullish, but I'm not just bullish this year, I'm bullish for the next several years. Um, and I do think that that calls for, if you are to make investment decisions, uh, go where you have access to the spot market. Because I, I really feel that if there's an investment you can do right now that's meaningful, it's the ability to take risk on tonnage that's in the market right now. Um, so I can, we can sort of, have an increasing curve where I can say a higher and higher and higher number and uh, you get to do the last number. But, but I actually, we went into the year and the, the general uh, sentiment amongst analysts was that this year would be good, but it would not be as good as last year. Uh, and I've always disagreed, but it seemed like January was, ooh, then the uncertainty set in for no apparently good reason except that People had a nice New Year's dinner, but uh, <laughs> but I, I do think that we are now uh, entering a period where there's sustained uh, strong markets, and, and as Michael alluded to, we're, we're having a lot of refinery maintenance periods at the moment, and, and rates are still really, really firm. So, uh, so uh, yeah, 23 stronger than 22, I agree with that. And, and if I could be so bold, because you, you noted multiple years, is 24 a stronger year than 23? When I look at the fundamentals, I just don't, uh, yes, something will happen, and I don't know what was gonna happen, but if you look at the, the fundamentals around it, uh, the order book for, for next year is one and a half percent. There's just not a lot calling for the, the fundamentals to be uh, pushing us downwards. At least that's where we've always stared. We've always stared at the order book and went, all right, we'll screw this one up, but, but this time around, that doesn't look likely. And regardless of who places orders today, it's not gonna impact 24, yeah. and it's not gonna impact 25. Yeah, that's done, that's done. James, you're batting cleanup. Well, how, what's, your, what's your perspective on the market through year end? Or if you wanna choose another year, that's fine too. Well, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll start different. At, at $40,000 a day for the fleet, Sting does 1.2 billion in free cash flow or 20 bucks a share. So that's a 30 to 40% free cash flow yield on today's price. Um, and I think we could do better than that. So that's Tony's 35 plus a higher for the LR2. And the fact that we lost money in Q1 last year. So we're starting off great and we're booking Q2 today. LR2s are at 60, MRs are 35, 40. I mean, this is a fantastic place to be. We had peak maintenance in the US Gulf in February, 3 million barrels of capacity offline that was moved forward. Uh, we've, we're finishing up that now. I mean, th those are fantastic rates for, for maintenance, and, and I think we've got a lot of momentum in the second half of the year as well. Inventories have drawn for 18 straight months, and, and they're, they're not building, so you know, typically people are worried about floating storage and inventory starting to rebuild, and we're not even having those discussions. We're looking at weekly reports where the numbers are still going to go down. All right, well, that's, that's a heck of a way to finish off the day. So I appreciate, gentlemen, very much your time and everybody joining us for the product tanker. I thought that was uh, the, the panel I thought was very, very enlightening. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.